Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. As you noticed this morning, I'm all alone up here. My partner in crime is gone. Pastor Myers and his family are gone on vacation, so do be in prayer for them that they would have a a restful and joyful week at the beach. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked with him. As he saw that the city was full of idols, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I have passed along and observed the objects of your worship, found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord in heaven of earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, and imagine an image formed by the art and imaginations of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom were Dionysius the Rapagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant and sufficient word. You may be seated. Anyone that has not been part of church nor knows anything about the Bible knows the story of David and Goliath. And what is amazing about that encounter on that day was that it was not supposed to happen. David, being the youngest son of Jesse, was sent by his father to go bring food to his three oldest brothers who were in the army. And so essentially, David was acting like the the modern-day DoorDash for his older brothers to bring some sandwiches, some grain, and some cheese And there he saw what was taking place, a 40-day standoff between the armies of the Israelites and the Philistines. 
And day after day, Goliath would come forth, defy them, mock them, along with their God. And the Israelites would cower in fear. And as a result, David, being a a very young man at this time, but a lad, was incensed. In fact, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And you know the rest of the story, don't you? That despite being rebuked by his brothers, belittled by Saul, mocked by Goliath, David went forth undeterred. And one little stone fell the giant, Goliath. And yet, as I said, it wasn't supposed to happen. David didn't leave the sheepfold that day looking for a fight, but he was provoked. The glory of God was at stake, and David would not idly sit by. Well, I think our passage this morning is the New Testament equivalent of David and Goliath. It's one of the most famous passages in the book of Acts, Paul in Athens, the mighty, mighty Athens, the home of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, the birthplace of Western civilization, of its thought and of its philosophy. Indeed, Athens was the cultural center of the world, and that is where Paul finds himself, and he does so essentially by accident, having been run out of Thessalonica and Berea that we looked at the previous weeks, he is sent by the team to Athens. And yet it says that his spirit there was provoked. He was not looking for a fight, but he was willing to stand for the glory of God because the glory of God was indeed at stake and he could not remain silent any longer. As a result, that puts him in front of the Oropagus, the who's who of Greek and Roman thoughts of that day. And so here is this little Jew up against the philosophical giants of the day. And like David, Paul slung his little stone, that is the the message that he had, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so doing demonstrates The wisdom of this world is no wisdom at all, but the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his crucifixion and of his resurrection, is the wisdom in which all of the world needs. We'll see that this morning in two points, worldly wisdom and then the wisdom of Christ. First, worldly wisdom, as I mentioned After angry mobs were stirred up in Thessalonica and then Berea, the team there, Paul and Timothy and Silas and now Luke, realized that Paul has to leave. That it's not only not safe for him, but it's not safe for the the people that are in this church. As you remember, Jason is drug into the the council and indeed is uh, uh, persecuted as a result of his affiliation with Paul. And so, Paul was probably becoming more of a hindrance than a help. But they keep Timothy and Silas in these places, and they essentially tell Paul, Paul, move along. Go to another place, and so they send him off. And I think they told him to to go and just kind of, Paul, lay low for a little while. Take a little R&R. Go to Athens. We, We hear it's nice this time of year. 
Go get yourself one of those fruity drinks with an umbrella and just rest. And that's what Paul does. Well, at least sort of. He sets sail to Athens, about a 250-mile journey. And it seems that he, at first, does the touristy thing. He goes around the city, and as he is touring it, he sees that it is full of idols. And verse 16 says that his spirit was provoked. In other words, he was agitated in spirit. He was bothered by it, and he can no longer remain silent. He's in many ways like the prophet Jeremiah when Jeremiah says, should I never mention of the Lord or speak in his names? He says, if, if I would, my, his word would burn in my heart like a fire, like a fire in my bones, Jeremiah says. I'm wore out trying to hold it in and I cannot do it. That's what I think is in the, the spirit of Paul, is that he cannot remain silent. It is like a fire in his very innermost being, fire in his bones. And he's grieved over what is taking place. And in many ways, he is no different than the Lord Jesus Christ as he was entering into the city and, and looking upon it. You remember him in tears crying out, saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that has killed the prophets and stoned those that are sent to it. How often I've gathered your children together as a hen would gather her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. It is that agitation, that disturbance, that grief that was felt in, in Paul's soul, and no doubt is felt in your soul as well over the lostness of this world, over the brokenness of people's lives all around you. And sometimes we have to confess it is too much. It's too heavy, isn't it? I think you know what I speak of. A few weeks ago, when brought up to my wife the school shooting in Texas. My, my wife just shook her head. Gave me that look of, I cannot. But my heart cannot handle it. Indeed, that is the spirit of Christ. When we see brokenness in this world, when we see how lives are shattered because of sin, we're not to be okay with it. We're not to have a cold indifference to brokenness into the sin of this world. Jesus surely did not. The Apostle Paul did not, nor should we. And yet what is equally sad, and perhaps even more tragic, is that the, the world does not have any solutions, does it? And that is what Paul seems to, to recognize as he's in Athens, that this mighty Athens, the, the philosophical center of the world, if anyone should have it, figured out it would have been them, but they did not because they were void of Christ and therefore they were void of wisdom and instead were full of idols. And that is not much different than our world today. And so Paul goes and 
reasons with them. He reasons with the, the Jews and it says devout persons and the Greeks, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Whoever would listen, it says that he would speak to, to anyone that happened to be there. I love that phrase. He would speak to anyone that would listen of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wanted to speak to them because it doesn't matter where they came from. If they were Jewish or they were Greek, all of them did not have that answer in which they were looking for. All of their viewpoints, all of their wisdom, all of their philosophy was equally insufficient. Nothing is different today, is it? We could go down the list of today's isms. Socialism, atheism, materialism, postmodernism. In fact, I found a website this week that lists 234 isms listed alphabetically from absolutism to zootheism. I didn't even know what zootheism is. It's the belief that animals are, are divine. If you happen to believe that, just come over to my house. I will introduce you to my pets. They may be very sweet, but they are about as dumb as a box of rocks. So if you think that there's anything divine about them, I seriously question your sanity. But that is the point, isn't it? And all beliefs have some truth, some more than others. Zootheism, not so much. But none of them have the, the whole truth. And a half-truth is a whole lie. And therefore, they all fall short. No one has the, the answers to which plagues the world today. There's a French post-impressionist artist, Paul Gauguin, whose paintings hang in museums today that go for millions of dollars. And one of his paintings has in the upper corner of it three questions that he wrote in French. I'll spare you my French and I'll translate it into English. The three questions are this. Where do we come from? What are we? And where are we going? Those are three very fundamental questions, aren't they? That shape our worldview. And it is the, the three questions, if people know it or not, that they are all looking for. And yet no politician, no philosopher, no Joe Blow with a Twitter account has a clue how to answer them. Because none really address the real problems of the world today. They may engage in the externals. They may come up with some external restraints. They may touch the mind and give some worldly advice. But none have a solution because none know what is the most fundamental problem. And I'll tell you what the most fundamental problem is. It's ourselves. It's our hearts. All of mankind wants to say that man is basically good. A man has a good heart. Mankind has, therefore, the solution to today's problems. But let me ask you, how well is that working out? If mankind is so great and is evolving, has come from the prime mortal ooze to the great creatures that we are, should we not be getting better and better? Should not society be progressing? Seems to me like things are devolving, not evolving. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I was reading this just the, the other day in my devotions, where Paul says, but understand this, in the last days there will come times where people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, 
proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. If we just go down that list and think about our culture today, think about our society, we would go, yep, check, 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 and that's not new. That's always been the case, hasn't it? But most philosophies, most wisdoms do not acknowledge that. That is not to deny who we are as divine image bearers, that yes, we are made a little lower than the heavenly beings, but too often we operate barely above the beasts that we are put in dominion over. Too often we are more beast-like than we are God-like, aren't we? And so you can pontificate all you want about the greatness of man. And I won't deny it, but that is not who we are anymore. That's who we were. That's who we were created to be, but we have fallen far, far from it. Sin has affected and polluted every aspect of mankind. Indeed, the gold has become dim. The light has become darkened. The light and wisdom and truth is hidden. And so the reality is that no ism of today acknowledges the reality of who we are. And it's because they have no solution for it. They cannot point out a problem for which they have no answers. And so indeed all worldly wisdom is smokescreen and mirrors. And in reality it is no wisdom at all. That's what Paul says, does he not? Romans chapter one, when we become futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts darkened, we profess to be wise, but in fact have become fools. That is the world in which we live. And that is the world in which we must speak. And we must speak with true wisdom. And we have that true wisdom. It is our second point. It's the wisdom of Christ. And that's what Paul does on that day. That day in Athens. There were those that heard him and mocked him and said this man is a babbler. Others were saying that he is speaking of foreign divinities. No doubt it was the Greeks that were saying that he was a fool. It's probably the Jews that were saying that he was preaching other gods. But what was it that he was preaching? Well, he tells us. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Indeed, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We preach Jesus Christ, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so as a result of him preaching Jesus, he's taken before the Oropagus. This would have been like the philosophical tribunal of the day. Perhaps it would be like being brought before the the board of education to see if these teachings are permissible. And you remember this was Athens. They provided uh, or prided themselves in being the intellectual elites of the day. The city contained the, the very best schools No doubt you have seen Raphael's painting of the School of Athens. And no, it is not UGA, dog fans. Sorry about that. 
It is a picture of, of Plato and, and Aristotle and other leading philosophers and, and theorists of the day. And so to sit on the Oropagus was to be the best of the best, the who's who of the academic worlds. So Paul coming before them would be like appearing before Yale or Harvard, Cambridge or Oxford. And yet here comes little Paul. That's what his name means, doesn't it? Little. And yet would this little man, little in stature, cower in fear, now he'd preach the only message that he had, the message of Christ, to those that had never heard of Christ. And it's very interesting. There's been much ink spilled over Paul's approach and his methodology, and there's much to learn there, but it's essentially a sermon. Paul was a preacher, not a philosopher, not a politician, but a preacher. In fact, as I look over it and was studying it this week, I see an introduction and three points, so how do you like that? He speaks of the creator and of the creature and of Christ. I can't be for sure those were his three points, but I plan to ask him one day. Paul, Athens, creator, creature, Christ, did I get that right? It's so interesting to see how he begins it says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That wasn't flattery. That wasn't buttering their bread. That was true. They were religious. The city was full of idols. One historian said it was easier to find an idol in Athens than a man. The city center was the Parthenon, the large temple to Athena, the Greek goddess, the patron god of Athens. They were religious meaning that they realized that there was something more that they, they could not see, something that was greater than themselves, a higher reality. They were true, that was true, but that was, as you could see, misguided. So they were searching, but yet were in the dark. They believed in many gods, but not in the one true God. And that one true God is the one that Paul desires to introduce them to. And he does so by saying, I, I've looked around at your city and I found an altar to the unknown God, which demonstrates that there is more than you understand. It's an acknowledgement that there is more than what you even know. It's a confession that in your worship you may have ignorance. And Paul says to them, that which is unknown I make known to you. Here it is, here is the truth. This is what I proclaim to you. Point one, God, the one God, is the creator. You see that in verse 24, do you not? The God who made the world and everything in it. God indeed has made the Lord and has made the world and everything in it. Paul does not soft pedal his message here, does he? Or pull any punches. He doesn't say, you know what? Greeks, you, you are very religious. You've done very well. You've done your best. But you know what? Just keep going. You, you do you, right? There's, there's many paths, many ways to this one God. Worship in your own way. No, he says, the one God, the God who made the heavens and everything in the earth. Not gods. The one God has made everything. Again, this was a highly 
polytheistic culture, many gods, as many gods as men, and yet Paul proclaims to them the one God. But he goes on, he says this one God does not live in temples made by man. So that nice temple that you have right over there, yeah, God does not live in that. Nor is he worshiped in that place. Solomon confessed the same when Solomon built the temple, you remember at the, 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 the wonderful introduction into the, the temple ceremony, into this aspect of setting aside this temple, Solomon prays, but God, indeed, will you dwell on the earth? Behold, the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built for you. And that was a God ordained, God-instructed temple. And yet Solomon confesses this temple cannot contain you. And, and Paul here says the same thing. He is not contained in a temple made by man, verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. You think that you're doing something by serving these gods, that these gods need you. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, that is true, that essentially you do something nice for the gods, and the gods will do something nice for you. You take care of them, they will take care of you. Therefore, the Greeks would fashion them, they would make them, they would provide for them, they would put out temples and give them food and make sure that they stood upright so they wouldn't fall over and break, all because they were not real. They were man-made. But Paul says, but God, the real God, the only God, does not need us. Tonight, we will return at 6 p.m. and, or excuse me, 5.30 p.m. and look at Psalm 50. And it's very interesting that these two passages would come together on the same Sunday. It almost like we planned it, but I promise you we didn't. It's just God's word that coordinates and speaks in every place. In Psalm 50, it says the very same thing. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. You hear what the Psalms are saying. You hear what Paul is saying. God is not in need of anything at all. God is not dependent on nobody and on no one. And that is quite different than us, as Paul goes on. He says, point two, man is a creature. From this one God, God created all. He created every one of us. In fact, you see that. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see the wonderful contrast, do you not? God is completely independent. Man is completely dependent. In fact, he'll go on to say that he needs everything. It's in him we live and move and have our being. That life and breath is all dependent upon him. In fact, he says there he has determined and allotted the periods and the boundaries of our dwelling place. He has deemed where we would live and indeed how long we would live for. He knows our days from the beginning to the very end. It's true. That in him, we truly live and move and have our being. He, he quotes that, which was a quotation most likely from a philosopher that they would have known. And it was a true quotation. 
And then he quotes one of their poets when he says, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul is demonstrating that he is not ignorant. He's not from just some backwater Jewish place. He understood the the Greek and Roman thoughts. He knew the philosophies. He knew their poets. He knew Greek and Roman thought. He was not sheltered. And that's why we want ourselves, we want our children to be extremely well-educated and well-taught and well-learned. It's not because we don't know any better. It just demonstrates that there is no better than Christ. Christ is indeed preeminent, that all truth is God's truth. All truth reflects who our God is And therefore, everyone that professes truth must borrow from God. That's what Paul is saying here, that even these philosophers and these poets are saying things that are true if they know it or they do not, because truth is God's truth. But there's something very significant in these first two points, do we not? Paul does not concede on creation, does he? In fact, he's just upholding Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. The Greeks and the Romans had very wacky views of creation. But again, Paul doesn't say, well, you know what, just believe whatever you want to believe as long as it's good for you. No, he starts where Revelation starts. He starts with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where he begins. That's the starting block, so to speak. And if we go astray there, we're, we're going to go astray in every other way. We're going to go astray from the very get-go. And so therefore, are we not surprised? We should not be. And in a world that has denied the creator of creation, we're beginning to now deny the realities of creatures, namely of male and female that we can't even know the distinction between a man and a woman any longer. What is a man? What is a woman? I don't know. It's whatever you want it to be. And yet that is absolutely ridiculous. It's foolish. If we took a, a trip down the hallway to the children's church or to the nursery and we asked those children, what is a boy and what is a girl, I guarantee that there will be no gender confusion. And it's not because we brainwash our children. It's because it is so obvious, it is so stark that even a five-year-old can tell the difference. It's innate. It's God-given. But when we remove the creator, what do we want to do? We want to remove the creator's imprint from the creatures. It's wicked. It's a denial of who made us, who we are, and who we belong to. And yet Paul boldly says to these Greeks, God made us, and we are his. And we must be willing to boldly proclaim that today, not because we are some type of cultural warriors, okay? Let me say this very straight. We're not doing that so we can battle against radical liberalism of the left. This is not a right or left issue. This is a gospel issue. Without understanding the creator, without understanding the creature, we do not have the gospel in order to preach and to proclaim. 
And that's Paul's point, isn't it? That's the point of Paul's preaching. He wants to get to the crux of his argument, which is this. Christ is the judge, and Christ is the Savior. He goes on to say, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine beings are like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by art in the imagination of man. He says, that time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So you hear what Paul is saying. It's pretty silly to think that divine beings are made of gold or silver. It's a mockery of, of their gods, the very way that they, they worship. He is essentially saying they are, they are dead, they are not living. They have no power, they have no solutions. They must be served by mankind, they must come from mankind, and yet mankind is the, the problem. Yet he says God is gracious. God has overlooked such ignorance. He has not brought rightful judgment or rightful condemnation upon us or upon you, even though that is what is deserved. That's what Paul says as well, doesn't he? Our God is long-suffering, waiting patiently that none should perish, but all should reach repentance. And yet that's what Paul does on that very day speaking to all of those that were the, the who's who of the day. And he calls them to repentance, calls them to acknowledge their sin, to acknowledge their creator, and to know that there is only one way to that God, and it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how it all comes together? He preaches God and man. He preaches creator and creature, and they come together in the God-man, the creator who became the creature for our redemption. And he says, this is the only way, this is the only path. Each and every one of you will stand in judgment before this God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the day of repentance is today. Not then, but now. There's only one way to the Father. And you might think, and no doubt many that day thought, Paul, you got some nerve. Preaching the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that there's only one way to this creator God, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. How dare you? And many would say the same today. Perhaps you would as well. I might tell you it is not arrogant to preach and proclaim the exclusivity of Christ. Rather, it's the height of supreme arrogance to think that there ought to be multiple ways. Sinclair Ferguson has this profound thought in one of his books. He says, if we want to lodge a complaint with God, as so many do, that Christianity and Christ is too exclusive, that we need more, we need more options. Ferguson says this, I think the Father would say to us, I sent my son to be sacrificed on the cross. I laid the sins of the world on him. I poured out the righteous wrath of heaven on him and heard his cry of anguish, that cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you think I would have done that if there would have been any other way? My son prayed, Father, if possible, let there be another way to bring them to heaven apart from the cross. Please let this cup be taken from me. But I said to him, my son, there is no other way. There's only one hope. It's the hope that if you drink this cup and bear the judgments against their sin, if not, there is no other way. Do you think now that if there had been another way, 
I certainly would have found it. Why would you despise my son in this way? Do you see it's not just a way, it is the way. The way, when there should have been no way. And praise God that there is, because it all comes by his mercy. And by his grace, completely undeserved. It is the answer when the world has none. The world has no solution for the problems of today. Sure, they can mask him. Sure, they can hide them. Sure, they can make them somewhat temporarily better, but none can heal. None can change. None can redeem. And indeed, none can save. Only God can. And he has. His name is Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. Do you know him this morning? Do you love him with all of your heart? Are you so glad and overwhelmed that God would provide redemption for a sinner like you? For indeed, he has. And I tell you, that is the answer not just for us, that is the answer for the world. You and I have it. You may not have an opportunity like Paul at the Oropagus, but I tell you, you have simple opportunities every single day. And are we going to cower in fear? Or are we going to be reminded that we indeed have the answer in which the world is searching for, even if they do not know it or do not even want it or like it? And so let me ask you, very personally, very poignantly, who is it that you're praying for? And who is it that you're talking to about the Lord Jesus Christ? And if names don't immediately come to mind, that's where you need to start. Lord, give me names, give me people that need to know this answer and work in their heart and work in me so that I would speak forth to them. And you might think, I, I can't do that. I can't speak to my neighbors or, or my coworkers about Christ. I, they know, know more than I do. They're more educated. Besides, isn't Christ a little too, too simple? A little too simplistic. I tell you, he's so simple that even the youngest child can understand, like we saw this morning. And yet he's so deep that the greatest minds cannot plummet the depths. That is the wisdom of our God. I'll close with this. I told you about the French painter Gauguin after he painted that particular painting, which was, in fact, entitled those three questions, where do we come from, what are we, where are we going? He went and attempted suicide by taking cyanide. Why? Because he did not have answers to his very own questions, and as a result, was hopeless. And yet Paul, more importantly, the Lord Jesus Christ, answers all of those questions just in this passage. That is what we have. That is the wisdom of Christ. And therefore, as Paul says, we, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God because we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Let me tell you, the world doesn't need our pity. It does not need our condemnation does not need our accommodation, it needs our proclamation. The proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it needs the good news of the gospel, the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, died, buried, and has risen again and ascended, is coming back 
once again. That is like David's slingshot. It hits the heart, and it hits the mind, and it brings down the giant of human reason and wisdom. It demonstrates, does it not, that the only wisdom we have is the wisdom of Christ. For as the Scriptures testify, it's in Christ. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. Amen. Let us go to the one who is wise above all. Lord, we come to you this day and we confess to you our ignorance. We confess to you our foolishness. Lord, we need the wisdom that is given only through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that wisdom is that you sent your son to die and to be our savior. The one that would ransom us from our arrogance, from our foolishness, from our blind thoughts and our hardened minds. And so, Lord, would you bring about that repentance again in us? Would we see that all wisdom and knowledge is hidden in the Lord Jesus Christ and it has been given to us until our eyes would be completely opened, until our hearts would be fully redeemed and set free in the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, would we gain that wisdom and insight but not do so so that we can be proud, O oh Lord, or arrogant, that we have found it and others have not. No, Lord, would we be reminded that this is given to us so that it would be given away, so that it would be shared with others. And so would we have that heart, O oh Lord, the heart to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel of sinners redeemed and saved by his blood and through that blood for all of eternity. We thank you for it. We pray it in Christ. Amen.